Once again, thank you, praise team, for leading us in, in praise of our Lord. Sometimes I think Pastor Dennis reads ahead in the, in, so he knows exactly what songs to sing, right? Isn't that great? Songs always seem to match exactly what we're, we're talking about today. But if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, we're talking about uh, what we've called the 11th hour. And we're looking at what the book of Revelation says about the end times and the last things that are going to be taking place there. And, and we're coming to, to really the, the most important part, I believe, of the story as we get to the, really the acne of, of what's going on in this cosmic battle that's been going on from the day that Lucifer said he wanted to become like the Most High until now. And this battle between God and, and, and Satan. And the way it all unfolds in chapters 17, 18, and 19 that we found was in these four steps. And in uh, the early parts of, of uh, chapter 17, we had the vision of this harlot and a beast. And, uh, and so we talked about what those were, and we saw that the harlot was the satanic counterfeit order that covered much of the Middle East. I do want to, uh, uh, to make a clarification from last week, too, because um, it was brought up, uh, uh, someone uh, mentioned it to me that I had said... In, I, it was based in Iran, and really it's Iraq, and I think that's important to note. I was looking, geographically, there's a lot of it that is in Iran, because when you look at the nations surrounding it, um, uh, it, 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 it definitely includes Ira, uh, Iran, because it's called Persia, but the political base is in Babylon, which is in Iraq. So I want to make sure we clear that up. I wouldn't want you thinking that, uh, that I have anything against Iran, right? So... Uh, but I want to make sure that that we're, that, we're, that we're clear there. Politically, it's based in Iraq, not in Iran. But we also then uh, uh, continue down further to the fall. We read about the fall of the harlot, the fall of Babylon uh, in, uh, in, in uh, chapter seven, the second half of chapter 17 and in the first part of chapter 18. Then we looked last week at the responses to the fall of Babylon, the responses on earth versus the responses in heaven, and we compared those so that we would know how to prepare ourselves. But who did that leave? That left the beast. So today we're gonna to talk about the fall of the beast. I don't know about you, but that's an exciting thing, isn't it? Amen. We're finally getting to this part where we're seeing the, the end of this battle that's going on here. And, and so today we'll talk about the fall of the beast. And it's gonna happen in two scenes. We have, we have uh, two scenes. The, the first scene is going to be what, what I call the return of Christ. And the, uh, or you could say the return of the king, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. And uh, that's a bad joke. I'm sorry. We could, especially when you hear that the second half is called the desolation of the beast. Not the desolation of Smaug, right, for those who are Lord of the Rings fans, but the desolation of the beast. But we've got the fall of the beast is what we're going to talk about today. And so that scene one is the return of Christ. And uh, we have to remember that where we left off, the harlot is dead. The Babylon is, is, is defeated. But the beast now has control, and the beast was led by the Antichrist, the counterfeit Christ. And at this point, it looks like he's winning. He's controlling the ten nations that represent the nations of the world. He's, he's winning the battle, he's in, and it looks like Satan's fake and counterfeit empire is starting to actually take, take place. But then out of nowhere comes this glorious event. Look at it, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, and and uh, let's read those together. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat in him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except 
himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a big deal, isn't it? This is what we've been singing about all morning, singing about Jesus and behold the Lamb. Here we, we finally see this, this return of Christ. And, and it's, a, it's an incredible event. In fact, when you think about the entire plan of, of God in redeeming the world, there's these two phases, uh, uh, and both are, are centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And there's these two, fa- two phases. The, one, the first one we call the first coming, right? And the first coming is when Jesus came to the earth the first time, right? And so what did Jesus do in his first coming? Jesus paid for our redemption, Jesus paid for our redemption. In fact, most of our, our religious holidays are based around the first coming. Most of them are, are based on that in some way or another. In fact, when you think about it, Jesus left heaven and came to earth. What, what, what do we, how do we celebrate that? Christmas, exactly. He lived a perfect life, and made, and which made him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, the Jews tend to celebrate this even more than we do, but uh, in fact, we, if you were here on Wednesday, we celebrated that uh, this week, and that's Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. The day that represents when, when, when uh, the, the sacrifice is made, which covers for the sins so that, uh, that uh, we could be forgiven. We, ce- we celebrate that. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. We celebrate that on Good Friday. And then, of course, the pinnacle of our holiday season, right? Just a couple days later, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, and we celebrate that every Resurrection Sunday. Amen? As we look at that, Jesus paid for our redemption in the first coming. But what is going to take place in the second coming? In the second coming, Jesus provides our, 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 our redemption. Jesus provides that redemption for us. And so I don't know about you, but seeing Jesus come in, in Revelation 19, that's a big deal to me. Isn't it to you? It's an exciting thing to see that now, you know, we're looking forward to this day when Jesus comes. And you see, up to this point, the counterfeit Christ is winning. The Antichrist is winning. He controls the beast, who controls the nations, who are controlling the world, and Satan controls him. And so, so that's where we left off. And then here in this one dramatic moment, the real Christ appears. And it puts fear into the heart of the enemies of God. In fact, when you look at this description, did, did you get the, the, the feel when we read that, that description of the coming of Christ? Did you get the feel that, that John was seeing things that he had a difficult time putting into words? Like, he's, he's trying to explain it, and it's hard for us to even, even understand what part of this is symbolic, what part of this is, is literal. It's, it's because it was just too glorious, too majestic for him to describe in, in, in words that he had on his in his and his tongue. And so I'd like to take a look at those. Let's take a look at there. In those few verses, there were 10 majestic descriptions of Christ. And my goal isn't that you memorize them or anything like that. I just want you to, to be overwhelmed by the majesty of Christ as we go through these. Is that all right? So let's take a look at those. Look, at, look back at verse 11. We read this. 
Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Just in this verse, we find three of the descriptions of, of Jesus. The first one being that he arrives on a white horse. A couple things to keep in mind there. Uh, typically, the Romans didn't use white horses in battle. Uh, so that was the, the empire that was going on when John was, uh, was uh, on the Isle of Patmos, and he was uh, imprisoned there. Um, they didn't, they, the white horses are just a little easy to spot on the battlefield. They make easy targets. So usually white horses were reserved for victory parades, right? And how, here Jesus is coming in, and he's coming in on a white horse, uh, which means he is not worried about being a target. I mean, he's got, this, he's got this battle in his back pocket, right? He's got this battle won. And, uh, and not only that, I find it interesting that if you, if you go all the way back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, we read this. You might remember this. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Do you remember that? Do you remember who that was, though? Because it's not the same person. This wasn't Jesus. This was the Antichrist. Right? Now you'll find Jesus has more than one crown, too. We'll get to that. Uh, but here we have the Antichrist. And so uh, when you think about that, the Antichrist has had, the access, has had access to the book of Revelation and all the prophecies about the coming of Jesus. So when the Antichrist comes, he is going to imitate Jesus, right? So when he imitates Jesus, he also is going to come on a white horse. And uh, so I find it interesting that, once again, the counterfeit is doing the best that he can. But, of course, it's going to pale in comparison to the real deal, to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, the real deal, has shown up which has been prophesied for, for almost two millennia. And yet, we're going to see this happen in Revelation 19. Second uh, description that we find here is, is that he's called faithful and true. And think about it. The word faithful means loyal or reliable. Right? Loyal or reliable. Let's compare that for just a moment to the Antichrist. Right, Jesus is, is loyal and he's reliable. That means he, he, what he says he's going to do, he's going to do it. And he said to us that he's going to come back. Do you believe that he's going to come back? Yeah, I do too. Because, you know why? Because he's faithful. He's loyal. He's reliable. Compare that to the Antichrist. The Antichrist offers a seven-year treaty and a seven-year uh, uh, um, period of time where the Jews are going to be allowed to offer sacrifices again. Does he keep that word? Three and a half years into it, what does he do? He turns on them. He knows who they are. He's got their names. He knows who they are. And he turns on them and says that unless you take the mark of the beast, unless you follow our religion, which lifts us up, you'll be put to death. Right? It's not faithful. It's not loyal. It's not reliable. He's also called true. True means trustworthy right? or authentic. Think of the Antichrist. How does the Antichrist gain power? Through deception. Right? He uses the, the, uh, the false prophet and it, they, he deceives the nations into following him. It's not the same thing. So when you think that Jesus is faithful and true, those are glorious, majestic descriptions of Jesus, are they not? The third thing you see in that same verse is that he judges and makes war righteously. He judges and makes war righteously. Uh, and we compare that to the violence of the Antichrist. 
when you think of the violence of the Antichrist, um, in fact, in, in chapter 13, we read this. He, the Antichrist, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then later on, of course, we read that he actually turns and attacks and kills any of those who are not willing to put the mark of the beast on. He's not, he makes war, but he's not making war righteously. When Jesus makes war, it's right. You know, throughout history, there have been wars that have been fought for, for noble reasons and wars that have been fought for less than noble reasons, right? And wouldn't you love it to know that, that whoever is leading you and leading your people or your nation always made the right choices and that you were always fighting on the right side? Well, the only way to do that is to be a follower of Jesus Christ because he is the only one who makes war righteously 100% of the time. Amen? And so we follow Jesus Christ in that. Look at verse 12 as well. We find three more descriptions. His eyes were like flame of fire, and his head were, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Let's take a look at some of these other glorious descriptions of, of Christ. Number four, his eyes were like a flame of fire. When you, when you think about that, um, this is how John described Jesus all the way back in chapter one. When he first saw Jesus in, in Revelation one, like, I think it was around verse 14, um, uh, he called, when he had the vision of Jesus for the first time, he said he had eyes like flames of fire. And, uh, and that was his description of him. And in that context, the idea was that he had this piercing and all-knowing judgment of sin. When, when, when he judges sin, he's got these eyes that can pierce right to your soul, and he knows what's true, he knows what's false. Wouldn't that be awesome to have, have Jesus just come in and kind of fix some of the things going on in our world right now like that? And all of these things, you have accusations going this way and that way, and who knows who did what? Jesus knows it all, and there is no escaping the, the, the piercing eyes of his judgment. He knows what's right. He knows what's wrong, and he judges righteously because of it. We also read that he wore many crowns. Remember, the Antichrist wore one, and of course, Jesus wore many crowns. And obviously, the idea of a crown is, is one of authority over the nations, right? And he's the king of kings. The, the, the sixth description there, it says that he had an unknown name. He had an unknown name. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what that is yet. It, it says that uh, only he knows it himself. And so there are some things that God allows to remain a mystery to us so that he can reveal it in just the right time. This is one of those things. Um, it, it, I read, too, this week that it, that it was said that in the Roman culture, when, when, when people would do magic... Of course, you know, they're, they're forms of, of magic that were deceptive. If you figured out the way that the trick was being done, you would say, I know your name. Because the word name meant a little bit more than just what you call people. It's, it's your character. It's who you are, the essence, the reality of who you are. And, uh, and so it, it could also potentially be a reference to that as well, to, to say that no one knew his name. In other words, what he did was so miraculous, no one could call him out and say, oh, I know what you're up to. I know what you're up to. No, he's Jesus. He's the real deal. Look at verse 13 as well. Find a couple more descriptions. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called 
the word of God. Here we have two more descriptions of, of Jesus. Number seven, he wore a robe dipped in blood. Here he's pictured, he is pictured as the divine warrior with blood-stained clothes, and he is coming with righteous judgment. And, and I, in fact, when you, when you, when you compare this to what, what is said about him in just a few verses later, where it says his feet are the ones that are trampling the winepress of God's wrath. And if you're trampling the winepress of God's wrath, you, you get stained just at the bottom. And I believe that's the picture that we see here, is that Jesus is coming in, and he, and, and, and he is the one winning the battle. He is the one fighting the battles right there. His, his, his robe is dipped in blood. He's also, his name is called the Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. This isn't the first time that John, the writer of Revelation, has called Jesus the Word. In fact, you only have to go to the very first few words of, that John wrote in Scripture to read about that. In John 1, 1, it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is he talking about here? He was talking about Jesus. He called him the Word. The Word. Uh, it's interesting, a little bit of the context of that as well, um, that there was a, a very popular uh, commentary on the book of Genesis amongst the Jews. It was called the Targum Neophyte. And in there, they referred to the word as, as that, that one missing piece, that if you just understood that one piece, everything would make logical sense. In fact, the word word is logos. It's where we get the word logic from. Uh, in, uh, from the Greek word there. And that, so if you, we understood that one piece, everything would make sense. And so John was laying out the argument in the book of John that Jesus is the answer to all of that. All of these, pro all of these prophecies of, of the Old Testament, all of our understanding of Genesis, if you understand Jesus, it all makes sense. By the way, that's true, isn't it? When you look at the temple, who's the temple? Temple was a path back to, to redemption and back, back to a right relationship with God. Jesus was the temple. But you have to offer sacrifices. Who's the sacrifice? Jesus. Who's the, who's the high priest who offers the sacrifice? Jesus. You, if you don't understand Jesus, you can't say, well, I, I knew everything. I understood everything except for that little part about Jesus. That means you didn't understand anything, right? And, and here he is. He is the word of God. He, he is the, the logos of God. The message about God to us, revealed to us. Look at verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So number nine, we'll see that he will lead many, or he will lead an army of saints into battle. By the way, when I say saints... I hope you understand. I'm talking about sanctified people, people who have been forgiven. I'm not talking about the, the Catholic idea of saints because uh, that certainly doesn't fit in Scripture. But I think there's an interesting thing, too. Notice what it says about our garments at that time. It says two things about our garments. It says that our garments are white. Now, so far, we've had this reference multiple times in the book of Revelation. What, are, what, is the white, what do the white garments represent? The righteousness of Christ because he gave us those garments. And so, and so we, don't, we, don't, we don't get saved. We don't accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and, and because of how good we are. In fact, we're dirty. We're, we're, our, our clothes are stained. But because of what Jesus Christ did, we receive the righteousness of God. 
And, and so that's what the white robes represent. But here we have a second description that they're also clean. Why is that important? Well, in context, who does not have a clean robe? Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't have a clean robe. His is dipped in blood. I believe that the reason that John emphasizes the cleanness of this is to show, hey, Jesus is coming in and he's actually fighting the battles. We're just on the victory parade with him. I don't think that the, the idea is that we even are, are fighting there. Why? Because I don't know about you, but every battle scene I've ever seen in any movie or even any battle scene that I can imagine in my mind means you're getting dirty. Is that safe to say? But he emphasizes here, no, we're coming with white robes and clean while Jesus is the one doing all of the work. I believe that it's only Christ that's going to fight the final battle. We're more like spectators and benefactors of that. And then look at verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule with or rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This tenth description is that he alone will judge the nations and subject them to his rule. Some interesting things in here. It says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Uh, how many of you, when you first read that, had a hard time imagining that? I believe that, that there, this is symbolic. I, I, you know, I, I, I have a hard time understanding how the sword could go and kill everybody. I could be wrong, and I would be okay with that. But I think that this is a symbolic expression that he's merely going to speak out the, the, the judgments and they're going to happen. I mean, what he says, he comes out because the sword always represents the, the fighting and, and, and putting to death. I think he's going to speak it out and it's going to happen. What a power that Jesus has. He doesn't need an army when he has that kind of power. By the way, who has the power to speak and things happen in Scripture. Who has that power? You know who I can think of? I can, the only one I can think of is God the Father. Right? It's God the Father. If you don't believe me, go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. And you're probably thinking, Pastor Dave, how are you going to put all those verses on one screen? Genesis 1, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24. Because they all said the same thing. And God said, dot, 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 and there was. God, the Father, spoke, and boom, there it is. Jesus has that same power that God has. He sees the enemies of God. He speaks the judgment, and it just happens. That's power. That's power. But you've got to remember, Jesus and the Father are one. That's what John said, right? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember what Jesus said back in uh, John 10, 27? He said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. He's like, I'm so powerful. No one can snatch, snatch my people out of my hands. Why? My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And by the way, verse 30, I am my Father are one. The, the majesty of Jesus Christ. Wow. He and the Father are one. So, so who is this warrior? Who, uh, who, is, who is Jesus who's coming on this white horse? The, 
to put an end to Satan's counterfeit order. I think he, he, he puts it as clear as possible at verse 16 when he says, and he has on his robe and on his thigh, which is where you would write it if you're riding a horse, he would, uh, this, king of kings and lord of lords. So the world can come up with its kings, but there's always a king over those kings. And that is Jesus. Well, the world can come up with lords, any kind of authority you want to put up. But guess what? Their boss is Jesus. By the way, I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of encouragement. Because has anyone here ever had a bad boss? <laughs> right? And Pastor Dennis, if your hand's raised, that's <laughs> Of course you have. But guess what? If you go up the chain high enough, you know who the boss of the boss of the boss of the boss is? It's God. It's Jesus. And, and what a comfort it is to know that, that on top of it all, in control of it all, is Jesus. And this is scene one of the fall of the beast. This glorious, majestic understanding of who Jesus is. And then we find scene two, what I call the desolation of the beast. There's a little warning here. A couple of these verses here are somewhat graphic. Right? They're, they're also proleptic. And what I mean by that is, is it's a glimpse of the end. He get, you know, just as he's done multiple times, he gives us a little glimpse of what's going to happen in the end and then walks us through the story. Uh, verses 17 and 18 are proleptic in that sense and a little bit graphic too. But verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. But this is an imagery of total desolation, is it not? He gives this little imagery of, of the future, and he says it, it's one of total desolation. And then John goes back and tells us, after this invitation to the birds to go after the corpses, he gives us the, the, how do we get there, verse 19. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So we've got the beast. We've got the ten kings and the, and the nations that they represent. We've got the militaries that go with them. Against whom? Against the Lamb and his church. Verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of of fire burning with brimstone. What we see happening here? We're beginning to see the satanic counterfeit trinity starting to fall apart, don't we? Remember what we talked about a, a few chapters back and, and how, how Satan is, is creating this counterfeit trinity and, and you look at God's trinity and of course we have God the Father and then we have uh, God the Son which is Jesus Christ and then we have God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's job is to draw people to the Lord via conviction. And then what we have is this, this satanic trinity where we have Satan at the top. Instead of having a Christ, we have the Antichrist who rules the beast. And then we have the false prophet who also, whose job is also to draw people to Satan but via deception. And so we've got this, this trinity. But here, in, in just this one 
this one small passage, what we find is the Antichrist is taken out of the picture, the false prophet is taken out of the picture, and they're cast alive into the lake of fire. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it, when you, when you, when you think about that. A couple of things that's inter it's interesting and worth noting here, because this will teach us a few things uh, about the end here. Notice that these are the first two cast into the lake of fire. No one else has ever been cast into the lake of fire at this point. This place has been reserved for them. In fact, when a person dies today, unless they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, uh, they go, there are different places that the name, the, the different names for the place that they go in Scripture. Hades, uh, Sheol, the grave, uh, Gehenna, so on. The lake of fire, these are the first two to go there. You'll also notice that they're not annihilated there. They, they're not just thrown in there and, and then killed. Because, a little spoiler alert, when we get to chapter 20, I think it's verse 10, we go back to, uh, to the lake of fire, and guess who's still there? The Antichrist and the false prophet. They're still there. So I think it's important to understand those things. They're not annihilated. They're still there. Verse 21. And the rest, remember, they, they brought the armies with them, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him, who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So when you think about it, now the real Christ comes on the scene, and he has eliminated the Antichrist, he has eliminated his beast, he's eliminated the false prophet, he's eliminated the armies, and when you, when you look at that, he has eliminated all that. By the way, who's left? Yeah, Satan himself. Anyone like to know what happens to him? You gotta come back next week. I used to do that to my kids all the time. I'd tell them a story, and I'd get to write to the, the best part. Remember that, Olivia? And I'd say, you're going to have to wait until tomorrow. And, and, uh, and so, I don't know, it's just one of those um, legal forms of torture that parents are allowed to inflict on their kids, I guess. But, uh, but we're gonna, we'll, we'll look at that next week. But when you think about this, when you, when, how do we absorb all that we're talking about in this, in, in this passage that we've talked about today? Um, I think when it, when it comes to applications... I think there's something for our head, something for our heart, and something for our hands. And what I mean by that is uh, there's something that we should know, something that we should feel, and something that we should do. And so I want to look at those for, for a moment. Let's start with the head. So what is it that we should know? That no matter how bad things get, know that Jesus is faithful and true. He will come again. Know that Jesus is faithful and true. He will come again. Jesus came the first time, and he paid for our redemption. He paid for our salvation. We're going to get that salvation someday. We're going to get that redemption. Why? Because Jesus is faithful and true. He has never broken a promise, and he never will. Amen? Never will. He's going to finish what he started. He paid for that redemption. He is going to provide it. Every time we, we celebrate communion together, we look back at the sacrifice that he made, and then we look forward to what? To his coming again, when he comes back and finishes on earth what he started. How about, how about our heart? What is it that we, should, that we should feel? I put it this way. Be in awe at the divinity and majesty of Christ. The more we, we get to know Christ, we should just be in awe of who he is and the majesty of who he is. Because I'll tell you what, no matter how convincing 
the counterfeit Christ will be, when we see the real Christ, we'll know the difference. When we see the real Christ, we'll, the, the counterfeit will seem less than impressive, right? I mean, have you ever watched a sci-fi movie from the 80s when it wasn't the 80s? Like, think about that. How many times have you seen a sci-fi movie when you were in the 80s and you thought, wow, the effects were awesome. Am I the only one who's ever seen sci-fi? You guys are like... You, you watch it at the time, you think, wow, this is impressive. Wow, look at that. It looks like that, that craft is flying, right? And then all of a sudden, you fast forward 20 or 30 years when, you know, technology's gotten a lot, uh, coming a long way, and you, and you look at that, and, and, and then you look at the effects, and you, and you look at them now, and you go back and you see something from the 80s, and you say, that is not very impressive. <laughs> you can see the strings, or whatever, right? I think that's the way it's going to be with, with, when Christ comes, is, is that in the moment, uh, we're, the people of the world, they're going to see what the Antichrist is doing and what the false prophet is doing to deceive the nations, and they're going to say, wow, this is awesome, and they're, they're going to think it's the coolest thing. But if you fast forward to that moment when Jesus appears, you look back at, at that and say, oh, that is not even impressive. It's not even impressive. And I think that's what we're going to see here. We need to be in awe of the divinity and majesty of, of Christ. What do we do? What, how about with our hands? What is it that we should do? I, I would say this. Get theologically grounded. Get theologically grounded. And what I mean by that is that we don't want to be fooled by the counterfeits. We, we don't want to follow the world. Why? Because we know where the world's going called desolation. We don't want to follow the world. We, want to, we, we, we have to be theologically grounded to be able to recognize the, the, the counterfeits for what they are. And by the way, we're not just talking about one counterfeit at the end. Satan is, is trying every which way to throw counterfeits at us even right now. And if, we could, if he could start pulling us away from what God wants us to do, from what God wants us to believe, from, from how God wants us to feel right now, then, then, then that's a success for him. And so he, he throws counterfeits out there all the time. How do you deal with that? You become theologically grounded. You, you, you become theologically grounded, and all of a sudden, when someone shows up in a white horse and says, I'm the, I'm the Messiah, you say, no, 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 you're not. Because we have some descriptions of the real deal, the real Messiah, and you're not it. We start recognizing those things. And I believe that we'll be raptured at, at, at that point, but that's the preparation that we should be having so that we recognize the counterfeits when they do show up. There was a church not far from here that posted on Facebook the other day something to try and draw crowds and get people to come to their church. And, and it was a, a man who had one leg that was, was uh, supposedly shorter than the other. Did anyone see that? On, uh, it was uh, passed around on Facebook quite a bit. And uh, so they got him on stage in front of everybody and, and they, 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 had him, they prayed to the Lord and had God grow his leg a couple inches um, right there in front of everybody. And I have to be honest, I know what the real deal is, and I was less than impressed. Why? Well, for one, I noticed that when they laid him on the table, when they wanted to show how, how, how one leg was, was taller than the other, he had to be bent like this, kind of. Well, what happens when you bend yourself this way? One leg becomes, or looks, shorter than the other. And then when they, when they move, now I would have been a little more impressed if they could have had their hands off and just said, all right, God, heal us. 
But instead, they get up there and they're moving his legs, and when they stop, they stop him straight so that now his legs look like they're the exact same size. Um, how many of you are going to drop everything you believed in Scripture and go run into that church? I hope not, and I hope the reason is because you're theologically grounded. Amen. Does that make sense? You, you, get, you get into this word, you get into this Bible, and all of a sudden the deceptions start to become a little bit more obvious. Right? They become more and more obvious. And, and you know, there are some great magic tricks on TV and some things. Some of them I was watching one with my kids earlier this week, and I still don't know how they did it. But I guarantee that it's just a trick. Right? Why? Because we know enough to know the real deal. And so I would say get theologically grounded. Be grounded more like an oak tree than, say, a tumbleweed in this world. Say, now, what kind of analogy is that? It's not mine. I'd like to take credit for it. It's not mine. But the writer of Psalm 1 actually wrote that one. I just want to run through it real fast. Psalm 1 compares the grounded person to the not-so-grounded person. He said, he said this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's like, don't, don't be the guy who's hanging out and getting their influences from the world. If you get your influences from the world, you know, that's a different story. But if you don't, you are, according to this, blessed. Blessed is the man who doesn't do this. Uh, don't follow the advice of the world. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. What's he saying? You don't get your influence from the world. You don't just listen to the opinions of everybody around you. Where do you get your opinions? From the scripture. Grounded in the scripture. And what happens? It says, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its full fruit in season, whose leaf shall also not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You see the stability of a theologically grounded person? You'd be grounded like a, like a big tree that's by the rivers of water. When I flew into Grand Rapids last time, you could see where there's little rivers, and, and you can see trees that are a lot bigger by all of the rivers than all of the other trees, right? You see it any time you're flying in or out. Why? Because those trees are grounded. Those trees have roots. Those trees have access to what it needs, the water and the nutrients of the soil and, and so on. It, it's got all those things. But if you follow the world, you're not so grounded. Look at verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff. What the word chaff here means? This Hebrew word for chaff? It can mean a couple of things. It can mean the chaff, like if you're, you, if you're taking uh, wheat and, you're, and, you, and you run it through, uh, 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 through this, the, like a, you take a winnowing fork and you throw it up and the wind takes the chaff and that's the part that blows away. It also can refer to a type of plant that has a very, a very shallow root. The root doesn't get very deep and so what happens is as soon as the wind comes, it blows it away. You know what we call those? Tumbleweeds. Tumbleweeds. You see them in the old Western movies all the time, Right? where the soil is bad and the roots are shallow and then a wind comes along and then you see these tumbleweeds going flying by with the wind and you get this imagery that, that they have no control over where they're going. And you know what? When you, when you stand in the path of sinners and you sit in the seat of the scorners and you get counsel from the ungodly, that's exactly what you are. Unstable. Easily deceived. Dare I say, gullible. And that's where you, and that's where you are. Verse 5, 
It says, therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Be grounded like oak trees, not like tumbleweeds. So that in the day, when the day comes, and the world's going the wrong way, you're not going to roll away like a tumbleweed. You're grounded in God's word. When you compare the real deal of Jesus Christ to the counterfeits that Satan is throwing at us, we shall always understand that the real deal is going to be better than any of those counterfeits. And the only way to recognize him is to get our descriptions right from this book. Jesus is majestic. Jesus is glorious. And he is the only one worth, worth living for, surrendering your life to. Amen? I'd just like to ask today, if there's anyone in here today that would have to say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I've never accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, or I'm, maybe I'm just not even sure if I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Maybe you're, I don't know why you're here today or what brought you here from, in your own mind, but if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I know why God brought you here today. He wanted you to know how you could walk away from here having a relationship with God, knowing that no matter what happens in the world, He's got your back. The faithful, the true, is going to be coming back for you.